Welcome to Hope and Suffering, an exegetical study through 1 Peter. Hello and welcome. I'm grateful that you have joined me once again. Uh, This is the Hope and Suffering podcast. Now, I'm going to do a little bit, something a little bit different today uh, than from previous times. I'm going to play a recording of a uh, a sermon that I preached recently. Now, this is not from the book of First Peter, so I, I realize that some of you are going to be sorely offended at me for delving especially into the Old Testament, which is not even the same testament as First Peter. However, I, this is something I've mentioned a couple times already in previous episodes about uh, what the first step is in seeking repentance from uh, from our sins, and that is confession, confessing our sins to God. So, uh, I hope you'll enjoy this uh, this message. Uh, it's it's a little bit longer, so um, this is definitely not going to be a nice short little episode. However, uh, I I truly believe this is one of the most important. Uh, topics and things that we can talk about as as believers and so um, I hope you enjoy it and I look forward to uh, to coming back next time with with some more uh, some more insights from the book of first Peter hey everybody uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 32. See it up on the screen here, Psalm 32. I love having the opportunity to come up here, and all these chairs behind me is really tempting for me. I'm uh, thinking about making this a whole lot more comfortable and sit in one while I preach. But on the flip side, I feel like I'd fall asleep. We don't want that to happen. Psalm 32. Uh, we'll go ahead and follow along in your, your Bible with me as I read. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time where you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, 
whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Father God, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the joy it brings, the message of deliverance, the message of forgiveness, God, of having our sins covered, having our transgressions lifted away from us. God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help me as I speak. I pray that I would be clear. I pray that I would be truthful and that I would say what is already been said by you. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with everybody in here who's listening. I pray that you would give them ears to understand. I pray that you would help them to to know what you are saying to them, God. And I pray that they would act on it as well. And for those who don't know you tonight, I pray that you would work a miracle in them and bring that dead person back to life, God. And so that they can live for the first time. They can know you. They can know this joy of forgiveness. And I pray this in your son's name, God. Amen. Guilt. One person said, guilt is a destructive and ultimately pointless emotion. Another person said, guilt is a useless feeling. It is never enough to make you change direction, only enough to make you useless. Guilt is an epidemic that plagues this nation. Uh, among young people like you and among old people alike, guilt is an issue that everybody struggles with at one time or another. I once heard R.C. Sprawl talk about this when he was interacting with somebody during an evangelistic in encounter. Um, you know, they were going back and forth, and he had all of his uh, uh, counter-arguments, and R.C. noticed that he wasn't asking questions to understand, he was asking questions just to argue, and he, he changed the subject, and he asked them just pointedly, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? And it took him by surprise, and... I don't remember the answer to his question at this point, but my question for you guys is the same thing. What do you do with your guilt? There's so many people struggling with guilt. This world tries to provide answers to these struggles in various ways. I Googled it and I took, I took the articles that, that came out first about guilt and, and handling, what, handling your guilt, doing what uh, you're supposed to do. Uh, and these are these are these are some of the. This one's called "How to Stop Feeling Guilty: Ten Steps." Set aside some time for yourself. Bring along a journal and keep track of your thoughts. Say to yourself, or write it down, what happened. You know, I feel guilty because I shouted at my kids. I broke a promise. I cheated on a test. Mentally open a door to guilt frustration, regret, anger, and any other emotions that might come up. Write down what you feel. Sit 
with those feelings and explore them with curiosity and judgment. Many situations are far more, far more complex than they first appear, so picking them apart, that knot of distress, can help you get a better handle on what you're feeling. Now, I thought about this for a while, and I still have no idea what they're talking about. Open, mentally open the door to your guilt. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and apologizing, the same article says a little bit later, talking about apologizing for things you've done wrong. You might owe yourself an apology too. Instead of clinging on to guilt and punishing yourself after an honest mistake, remember, no one does everything right the first time. And it says later, instead of shaming yourself, ask yourself what you might say to a friend in a similar situation. Perhaps you'd point out the good things that they've done, remind them of their strengths, let them know how much you value them. You deserve the same kindness. Later, self-forgiveness involves four key steps. Take responsibility for your actions. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? Express remorse and regret for, uh, without letting it transform into shame. Uh, getting sketchy. Uh, commit to making amends for any harm you've caused. Okay, that's, we, can, we, can, we can hold on to that one. Practice self-acceptance and trust yourself to do better in the future. Now I read these, and uh, we have them all up there, but we don't care about this. Um, I read these out loud because I want you guys and you gals to hear what the wrong answers are. Uh, there's so many of these out there. There's a few nuggets of truth, but overall these remedies came out of the pit of hell and their lies that Satan tell young people like you, older people, they can only do harm. This is what people are plagued with, uh, with guilt, and they far too often find these online. These are the first search uh, suggestions, the first things that popped up in the search. And we wonder why guilt is such a big issue in this country and in the whole world. People don't deal with their guilty feelings in a way that is right, in a way that we were designed to do. So in the passage this evening, we will find from the personal experience of David the answer to how we deal with guilt. So uh, we're going to be talking about some context. And so many of you know how King David uh, sinned, and you know about his major sin. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at that together. Open your book, your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going to be in chapter 11. So read along with me, and, and, uh, or swipe to it if you got your, I see all of you got your little digital Bibles out there. And read along with me, or listen if you're still looking for it. Starting in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they de uh, destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. When he was supposed to go out, he stayed. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. 
And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So what happened here? David was not where he should have been. As the king, he should have been out leading his men in battle, but instead he stayed home. Uh, he saw this woman uh, bathing, and he dwelt in that situation, right? He didn't flee from that situation. He dwelt there, and he started asking questions, inquiring about her. And you guys know the rest of the story. Now he's in a pickle. He's in, he's in big trouble because now she's pregnant, and his, her husband is out to battle. So what he does is he brings Uriah back, but Uriah is so loyal to him that Uriah won't, you know, spend time with his, his wife because his plan was, well, if Uriah comes back and uh, spends time with his wife, then everybody will just assume that the baby's his. Problem solved. But Uriah was so loyal that he wouldn't do that. So now David's in trouble even deeper. So what does David do? He sends Uriah out. Front lines. For sure, Uriah is going to die. Turns out exactly what happens. Uriah dies, and uh, David does the honorable thing by taking Bathsheba as his wife. Um, it seems like the story, it seems like his plan succeeded. It seemed like he was, you know, like it all it all went well. Like he got away with it. But what did, what did we see in chapter 11, verse 27? But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It seems as though the plan was a success, but God saw and God knew. And David knew that God knew. David knew that God saw. And it tore him apart on the inside. You know, scholars like to, to, to think there's good evidence to this, that there was about a year of time in between that sin with Bathsheba and when Nathan came to confront him about that. Uh, look with me at that, chapter 12, verse 1. Then when the, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except what little, uh, one little ewe lamb, which he brought, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and he would eat his bread and drink his cup and lie in his bosom and lie in his lap. Uh, and it was like a daughter to him. He really liked this little lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich, a rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock from his own herd, you know, it was customary to kill, when you had a, a visitor, to kill a lamb and, uh, and feed him. But he, he had a whole bunch, but he didn't want to take one of his, so what does he do? Uh, to prepare for the, uh, excuse me, he was unwilling to take from his own to prepare. Rather, he took from the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. And then it says, the day, the then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, 
Surely this man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for this lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. God had given everything to David in abundance. Like David had so much. And what did David do? He, he had Uriah killed and took his wife as his own. Jump down to verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Notice here that David said to here that he sinned against the Lord. He sinned against God. Not mentioning the fact that he sinned against both Bathsheba and Uriah, among others. And we can see this even in Psalm 51. So turn with me to Psalm 51. This is the psalm everybody kind of thinks about whenever we talk about Bathsheba, uh, his incident with Bathsheba. And it says right here, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David realized something very, very important about his sin. He, he realized that his sin was first and foremost a sin against God. In Psalm 51, David lays out his heart concerning his sin. He confesses it before God fully and completely, not making any excuses, not minimizing it in any way. In Psalm 51, David acknowledged to God that his sin came from his heart, it was an outpouring of his wicked heart. It was not simply just a mistake that he had made. It was not simply a mistake that he had made. He realized that before any steps of restoration could be made, he first had to confess his sin to God. So what is step number one when you're faced with sin in your life? It is to confess your sin to God. So now we're here at Psalm 32. So turn with me back to Psalm 32. This was written sometime after Psalm 51, probably. And so while Psalm 51 is David's confession and his prayer, Psalm 32 is David's instruction. Now he's teaching. He's teaching us how we can confess our sins to God. He's teaching us that confession is so important. And this is seen clearly even in the title of the psalm. In the, here in the superscript, uh, it says the psalm of David, a masculine. So a masculine is, uh, there's some debate as to what this really is, but it's, it's uh, probably an instructional psalm. Uh, it was probably designed to be memorized, something to be memorized. And so uh, we, we think of Psalm 119, 9 through 11. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. He says, 
your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I would encourage you guys to memorize as much as you can of Psalm 32. It's not that hard if you, uh, if you really put your mind to it. Uh, so this Psalm, David is saying this. He says, this is David saying, I have sinned greatly, but I have repented and I have confessed and I have experienced true joy as a result. Now let me show you how to do the same thing. That's what, what David is saying. Let me show you how to do the same thing. And so this psalm can be, can be divided into uh, a few main sections. Man, I'm really bad at pushing these buttons. <laughs> There's Psalm 51. Okay. Uh, this, this, uh, this song can be divided into two main sections, David's experience and David's instruction. So the first thing we're going to look at is David's experience. David separated his experience into two parts. We see that up here, the blessed man and the guilty man. And so let's look at that. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed here can be translated happy or joyful, and it's in the plural. So it's literally, oh, the happinesses, the happinesses of the man whose transgression is forgiven. The, just the, the, mass, the quantity of, of joy that is being experienced by this person who's been forgiven. It says, happy is he, joyful is the man. And there are so many who boast that they have found the source for true joy and happiness, right? It seems, like, it seems like you drive down the freeway and you see billboards everywhere. Like, this is where it is. This is where it is. You watch TV. This is where happiness is found. And, and this, this is what David says. That happiness, true happiness, is found. Notice here that we have four words uh, that are used for the wrong things that we do. We see the word transgression. Uh, this is a willful rebellion. This is an idea of just living a life of, of rebelling against the eye. We see sins. And this is literally means like missing the mark. These are specific sins or actions or thoughts. We think of Romans 3.23 that says... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see iniquity. These are, uh, has to do with being twisted or crooked or corrupt. And we see deceit. And deceit is easy. It's just being untruthful, right? Uh, the Net Bible has a note here that says, uh, that says, you know, it says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He refuses to hide or deny his sin. And this is key. I like to, I like to think of uh, these as a, what's called a thesis statement. This is where uh, David is kind of summarizing everything he's about to say in these first two words, and then he's going to expound it all later on. So this is, uh, this is really key. And so what is, David just, what is David saying here? That this blessed, the blessingness of this man is in the fact that his transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. The word here forgiven means to lift it off, to lift it away. 
that's going to be really important uh, in a little bit. So take that into your back pocket and keep it uh, for free. It says here uh, that and David just laid these things out, and he's going to give you an example. He says, now let me give you an example with what I just said in my own experience. So this is the guilty man here. Here we go again with the... Ooh, that's the blessed man. Okay, the guilty man. When I kept silent, my bones wore away through my groaning all day long. It says... My body, some different translations say different things, but this has the idea of bones. The idea of groaning here, this word can be translated roaring or screaming even, all day long. It says, when I kept silent, and we see a, a dichotomy here. We see an outward silence and an inward screaming or groaning. We see outward silence, inward agony. Maybe outward he's remaining silent, but on the inside he's screaming. His soul is screaming in agony. It says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And so we see that this simply wasn't David feeling guilty because David misunderstood his situation. He didn't need, he didn't need to journal about this and open the door to his mind, whatever, whatever that means. David didn't feel guilty because he was being too hard on himself. And he just needed to trust himself not to do it again. David felt guilty because David was guilty. David felt guilty because David was guilty. That's why I put it for the guilty man, I put a gavel right there. You know, there's a whole lot of pictures I could have put of a guy holding his hand, head in his hands and depicting the fact that he felt bad for what he did. But I want to talk about uh, objective guilt, and I want to talk about subjective guilt. So what am, what am I talking about? Subjective guilt are guilty feelings. When you feel bad about doing something, you are subjectively guilty, which means you, you feel bad about it. But what if you do something bad and you don't feel bad about it? Are you guilty? Not subjectively, you don't have those guilty feelings, but you are objectively guilty. If a man stands before a judge after committing a murder, and the judge says, well, why shouldn't I punish you for doing this? And he says, well, I don't feel bad about it. I must not be guilty. The judge says, all the proof says that you did it, therefore you are guilty whether you feel like it or not. That is objective guilt. David was objectively guilty. And because of this, he felt the weight of God's hand crushing him. And what does that crushing hand cause? It says, my vitality in the NASB, it's literally juices. His life juices were being drained away as with the fever heat of summer. This heavy, crushing hand of God squeezed the life juices out of him. Uh, and it's almost like the juices came out and were drying up like in the summer heat. And we see here, Selah. Now, there's a lot of debate as to why what Selah really means. A lot of people think it's like a musical interlude. 
where all the singing would stop and just the instruments would come in. A lot of people would even go so far as to say that the, the purpose for Selah is to uh, stop the singing so that you can think about what had just been sung with a little bit more clarity, a little more detail. And uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but when I read the Psalms, this is, this is what I do. Whenever I see the Selah, I just take a second, I don't go on, I just take a second and I think about what was just said. So let's do that. It says, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David felt that crushing hand of God for a year. It was squeezing the life out of him. What an amazing grace it was that Nathan was sent to him. Have you guys ever thought about that? Can you imagine if God had never sent Nathan to him to confront him over his sin? He would have been dealing with that crushing guilt, his vitality being drained away for the rest of his life, maybe. And so what is that crushing, excuse me, some of you, some of you sitting here tonight, no doubt have sins that you are hiding. You are guilty of sinning against God, but you are keeping it outwardly silent. And you feel that crushing hand on you. It's compressing you. And you may be trying all you can to ignore it, but it's always there. Maybe some days it feels a little bit better than others, but it's always there. Let me tell you, all the world's ways of getting rid of it will not help. They will not help. Let me tell you tonight that this heavy weight is a grace in your life. If you are a child of God and you are caught in sin, that crushing weight means that God will not let you go on in that sin forever. Until you've made things right. And you were right before him. So don't wait, guys. Don't wait to make things right before God. How? <laughs> How do we make things right before God? He says here, I've made my, my sin known to you. My guilt I did not cover. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you lifted off the guilt of my sin. Selah. Do you see this repeated covering, lifting off? In verse 1 we saw it, whose sin is covered. In verse 5 we see it again. You did not cover, or I did not cover my guilt, excuse me. And then verse 5 again, you lifted off the guilt. As long as David was covering his own guilt, his own sin, he was feeling that crushing weight. He was feeling that agony. He was feeling all sorts of pain on the inside and as long as you are covering your sin there's no hope but as that sin is uncovered when David uncovered his sin that guilt was lifted away God lifted that guilt away and he was forgiven when I was a little kid I I, uh, I had a my very first ever pocket knife, and it was a rusty old nest, like little thing I found, I think. Um, and I was playing with it, which is something you should never do. Um, and I was just cutting a bag or something, and, and it was extremely dull. And it slipped, and I cut my finger. 
Uh, in my household growing up, when you cut your finger, you didn't get baby, you didn't get a band-aid, and oh, it's here, here, it's okay, you know, let me kiss it, make you feel better. No, you got made fun of whenever I cut my finger. So I did the best I could to cover what I had done. I did not want anybody to know what I had done. Um, but it was really hard to hide it when there was a blood trail leading right to me on the ground. And, uh, and they found out. Uh, they found out, and uh, I'm sure I got made fun of. I can't remember exactly, but uh, I got found out. Uh, there's another... No, I'll skip that one. So, and also the word confess here is interesting. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. This word carries the idea of publicly, verbally praising God, singing to Him, giving thanks to Him, confessing. And it's almost as though this act of confessing it should be natural to us. It should be natural as singing praises to God, giving thanks. Have you guys ever thought of that? that getting to a point in your Christian walk that, that uh, confessing our sins to God is as natural as singing to Him, as, as giving praises to Him, giving thanks. Well, next we're going to look at David's instruction. This is the second half, verses 6 through through 10. And David's instruction here can be separated even into to two parts as well. And we see that it's God's protection and God's counsel. So look at me with at uh, verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore, therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, pay attention. Pay attention to what's before it. And pay attention to what's after it, because now Paul, Paul, now David is giving you uh, some call to action. He's saying, now do this. David is con answering the question, you know, is confession, confessing my sin really worth it? Is confessing my sin really worth it? It doesn't seem like it's really worth it. Some sins are embarrassing. Some sins are really hard. I've done a pretty good job of covering it up so far. Uh, it would, depre it would uh, depress a lot of people. It would disappoint a lot of people if I confessed what this, this sin is that I've been hiding. Uh, I don't even want to confess it to God. Is it true that God will still love me? It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now that word godly could be translated faithful. Uh, this, this is, uh, and I was a little confused when I was studying. It says, in a time when you may be found. Does that mean that there's a certain times when God won't be found? Uh, literally, this is translated in a time of finding you. In a time of finding and. Some translate this as a, uh, a window of opportunity, or even some other translations say immediately. So whatever the translation, the idea is urgency. It's urgency. Don't wait. Don't wait to confess your sins to God. If you hurt somebody you love, why would you wait to seek forgiveness from that person? You know, I, I, I can throw maybe Jared under the bus and see he threw me under the bus pretty hardcore last week. 
Um, you know, if David, David hurt Missy somehow in a terrible way, maybe he kissed somebody else. I don't know. Um, the right thing for David to do in that, in that instance is not to wait to seek forgiveness from Missy. It would be to go to her immediately as soon as he can to, to seek forgiveness and to ask for her forgiveness. It's the same thing with God. And if you think about it, it's not even, it's not the fact, or it's not like God doesn't already know what you did. It's not like God doesn't already know. God sees everything. Why would we wait? Why would we wait to seek Him, seek His forgiveness, to confess our sins to Him and make things right? It says, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. And in the Middle East, there are a lot of what are called wadis. And it's, it's a dry creek bed. We have a lot of them around here. You, you know, you drive down New Hall or uh, Bouquet Canyon, and you got that big dry riverbed down there. And you guys have seen it whenever it rains, especially at the Masters University, it happens. I've seen guys out there uh, dragging surfboards or whatever down the middle of the street because everything all just all of a sudden floods and it becomes a raging river. One, one person said, said this. It's, uh, it said, without pardon, our souls are dried up and subject to the waters of divine judgment. But when we repent, the Lord saves us from being drowned in the flood of his anger. So that's, that's the idea here. Find God, seek God in the time when he may be found urgently, as quickly as you can, because you don't want his, his wrath. You don't want that crushing hand on you anymore. You don't want his, his, uh, his punishment. And I do want to make a distinction here. There's a difference between being punished by God as a child and being punished by God as a unbeliever. If you are God's child and you're being punished by him, then it's the same thing as a loving parent punishing you. It maybe doesn't feel like that, but that's how it should be taken. And so the answer is not to hide and rebel even further. The answer is to humble yourself and apologize and seek forgiveness. Confess those things that you've been hiding. If you're experiencing God's chastisement, his punishment as an unbeliever, then it's, it's way different, right? It's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it will, if you continue to reject him, if you continue to reject his free gift of grace, then it will last for all of eternity. And that is a terrifying place to be. He says, he says here, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. So David says that God is his hiding place. So what is David hiding from? What do you guys have any ideas? Who, who, what is God hiding from in here? If God is his hiding place, who is, God hiding from, or who is uh, David hiding from? Just yell it out. Anybody has an idea? What'd you say? 
Yeah. God is his hiding place. He's hiding from God. Not in a bad way. Not in a bad way, but from that crushing hand, that that oppression, that that uh, that that guilt, that crushing hand of God. He's hiding in God, and it's like this. It's like this. I was listening to a sermon by a guy uh, named uh, Ironside, which is an awesome last name, and he told this story about when he was uh, when he was out uh, doing evangelistic meetings, and he would come home. And his son was just a little kid at the time. His son uh, would like to play a game with him called Bear. And so this is the game. He would set up like a little fort off in the, the corner of the room. And he would put on a big overcoat. And he would be the bear in this game. And he would, I mean, the, the point of the game is to chase his son around the house, acting like a bear trying to catch him. And uh, he would have great fun doing it. And But one time he was chasing his son, and the son got in a corner, and, and he was gonna get him. He was gonna get, the bear was gonna get his son. And his son was terrified, and it all became real for him. And he just turned around in the fear in his eyes as the bear was about to get him. Um, but then he realized, and he's, he stopped, and he's like, wait, 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 no, no, no. You're not a bear, you're just my papa. And he ran, and he hugged him, and he embraced him, and. He picked him up and he said he could feel his heart just pounding within him. This is the same kind of idea when we're terrified of God because he knows what we did. He knows, he knows to the finest detail what we did, including our thoughts, including our own hearts, before, during, and after that sin. But instead of running from him, we can hide in him. We can experience his embrace as a loving child in full forgiveness. Guys, why would you reject this? Why would anybody reject being able to experience God's forgiveness and God's peace and God, the joy that comes from this? Why would you say no? God is the most terrifying person when you're hiding your sin, but he's the most comforting presence when you humble yourself and you confess it. We see the next little section here is God's instruction. God's instruction. Verses 8 through 10 it says, I will instruct you. says, I will instruct you, and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Notice how this switches again to the first person, and this isn't even David speaking anymore. I believe this is God speaking to us now. It's almost like David took the, the, the microphone off of his mouth and handed it to God. Now God is giving his side. He says, God's telling them, I will teach you in the way you should go. Not only will God not be coming for you in judgment, not be crush, having his heavy crushing hand on you, but he will actually guide you through life, providing your counsel with his eye upon you. 
Now, how much, how comforting is this? How comforting is that? It says here, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, and whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, you will not come near. This is talking about like these stubborn animals, these stubborn animals that don't listen unless you stick things in their mouth and you, you try to get them to obey by wrenching them around. There's two things we learn from these guys, the horse and the mule. One, it's foolish. It's utter foolishness because God will lovingly teach you and counsel you with his eye fixed on you. He, he's, he's watching you. He's watching over you. Why would you be so stubborn to resist? And the second thing is that if you hold, if you need to be, if, excuse me, if he needs to hold them in check, if he needs to hold you in check like this, it's going to be uncomfortable for you. It's going to be painful with that bit and that bridle in your mouth. Remember, God will not allow his children to disobey forever. You can, you can kick all you want. You can struggle all you want. But God will not allow his children to disobey forever. It says here, finally, many are great. The Hebrew word could be great. Great are the sorrows or even sufferings. It could be sufferings. Great are the sufferings of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. For those who belong to God tonight, your suffering will grow until you make things right with God. For those who are not believers here tonight, your sufferings will only grow as well. Uh, you may have lived your whole life doing whatever you want until now. Uh, you may have not felt the guilt in the way that I'm describing, but maybe now you are. Do not ignore these guilty feelings. They are showing you that there is objective guilt that must be atoned for. Can you atone for your own sins? Absolutely, you can. Some of you are like, whoa. But the thing is, is you... If you atone for your own sins, I said this before, it will take you all of eternity to do so. And you will never be able to pay it all back. Romans 4, 1 through 8 says this. And you can turn there, but otherwise just listen. Romans 4, chapters one through, or verses 1 through 8 says, what, should, what then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is credited as a favor. Uh, excuse me, is not credited as a favor, but what is due? But to one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You see that Paul is quoting this psalm here when he's talking about the just or uh, pe people in this Old Testament context. David, uh, excuse me, Abraham uh, are justified by faith apart from works. And then this is the psalm uh, Paul goes to in, in, in discussing this, uh, this important truth. And we see whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, salvation was the same. It is believing God, believing the promises of God, putting your faith off of yourself, off of other people, trusting God. What does that look like for us now that we have a bigger picture than Abraham did? Abraham just had a promise. But we, we get to look back. We get to look. We, we have this. We have this whole story here. We get to look back and we see Jesus Christ who died for our sins. This is why David can finish the psalm with these words right here. This is why David finishes the psalm with these words. He says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright, in heart. Oops, okay, so there's a donkey. <laughs> and who is this faith in but in Jesus Christ? We are now under no condemnation because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Rejoice and exalt. These are commands here. These are commands. It is so easy to fall into the trap that you can atone for your own sins by making yourself feel bad or flogging yourself like a monk. But we all have... We have all the reason in the world to rejoice and exult because Jesus paid for these sins once and for all. There's likely a lot of guilty people in this room, objectively and subjectively. Some of you need to confess your sins to God for the first time. Repent of those sins and trust Jesus Christ to save you from the penalty of those sins tonight. Don't, don't put it off. Some of you are already children of God, but you need to confess a sin or certain sins to God, to others who, whom you have hurt in those, in those sins. You've had that heavy weight of God's crushing hand on you for some time. Don't wait to make things right. Some of you maybe have already confessed but you still feel that guilt. It's, it's lingering. And you find it hard to believe that you're forgiven. And you also feel that you need to dwell on what you've done. Maybe you need to, like a monk, you know, monks back in the day, even today, they would walk up and down stairs on their knees until their knees bled because they thought that that would make them right before God. Or they would take little whips and just whip their backs like this because they think that that would make them right before God. And some of us here today hold on to guilt, hold on to those bad feelings, and we torment ourselves and inwardly because we think that that's going to somehow make us right before God. 
Listen, there's a place for guilty feelings and for sorrow when you sin, but if your joy is only present, listen, this is so major, if your joy is only present when you perform well, when you do the things you're supposed to do and you live the life you're supposed to live, then your joy is rooted not in the finished work of Christ, but in your own self-righteousness. Rejoice that you've been saved by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. There's no better news than that. There's no better news than that. So to summarize, how do you deal with your guilt? Confess your sins to God. Be reconciled to him. Enjoy the peace and the happiness in being forgiven and having a clear conscience. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for sending Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation of God. Thank you. Thank you for your crushing hand that leads us where we should go. God, thank you so much that you don't leave us in the, the mire and in the muck, God, but you, you, like a loving father, you bring us out and you adopt us into your family. Father, I pray that you would be with everyone in here tonight. For those who have never experienced your forgiveness, I pray that they would receive it tonight. I pray that they would have a, a conversation with their small group leader. I pray that they would... Um, I pray that you would work on their hearts. I pray that you would soften them. I pray that you would save them tonight. And I pray... Pray for all those who are struggling, who are your children in here. I pray that you would help them to be right before you, to, to re remember that nothing can separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help them to confess their sins before you and whoever they need to, and, and that they, they may be right before you and be restored. I, I pray that you would give them boldness to speak to their small group leader as well, or their parents or whoever again, and pray that you would you would help them with that. And God, for all of us who are still struggling with this guilt, even though we've confessed and we're, we're struggling in believing you that you are, uh, that your promises are true, that you will forgive those who humble themselves before you. And God, I pray that that you would help us to remember that, that you are good. Even just a, re a quick reading through your scriptures reveals that, that your promises are always true, that you always keep your promises, and, and that you are a good and gracious and loving, forgiving God. I pray for everyone in here tonight. I pray that you would glorify yourselves in the hearts and the minds, the actions, the speech of everybody in here tonight. We thank you again. In your name, amen.